It goes without saying that water is essential to all life on Earth. Well, we're reaching the limits of our water resources in many places of the world. And that's also why we actually we need a global water agenda, but it doesn't exist. That's one of the big challenges. So why isn't day. there a water agenda in the works? With water being essential for human life, we all have an interest and a role to play. And clean water and sanitation are closely linked to other sustainability issues. In this episode, we'll dive into SDG 6, Clean Water and Sanitation, to better understand the challenges we face and hear about concrete actions being taken to solve those challenges. We are now in the decade of action, and here we'll talk with companies and experts from all over the world about how they're taking actions on the SDGs. To learn from each other about the challenges, opportunities and solutions on the road towards 2030. From the GRI, this is The Rising Tide. Episode on SDG 6, Clean Water and Sanitation. We heard from Dennis van Peppen, International Water Programme's team lead at the Netherlands Enterprise and Development Agency. And as you know, water is, uh, is, is important in the Netherlands. Uh, we are uh, living for a big part on the water. There's a lot of water here which we need to manage. So there's a lot of knowledge and expertise developed and experience developed. And we try to uh, employ that knowledge and expertise abroad. And what I do uh, for a big part of my day and my agency and my team is uh, connecting that knowledge to international water challenges to make uh, sure that the way the world is uh, dealing with water is becoming more sustainable. Knowledge sharing and sustainable solutions are key. But where does water currently stand on the international agenda? So climate has become a matter of survival for, for humanity and it's being recognized as such. You see that also in the space of biodiversity in nature, quickly it's developing into a global agenda. But water, not yet. Because of that, the sense of urgency, the sense of urgency with regard to water is much, much less. That is only insiders or, or people that are actually dealing with water stress or pollution uh, or floods that are feeling it on their skin and, and feeling that, that we have a crisis. But uh, for those that don't, and there's still the majority of the people in the world that, that don't, they face a looming water crisis without actually knowing it. So this should be a clear wake-up call. In economics, there's something called the tragedy of the commons, when individuals neglect the well-being of society in pursuit of personal gain. This leads to overconsumption and ultimately depletion of common resources, leaving everyone worse off in the end. There's the conception that there is a lot of water and that it's always available, but the reality that it that it is not. And uh, in many parts of the world, even in my country, we are facing choices that we need to make uh, about who gets the water and when. You know, it poses the question of, okay, who's who owns the water and who regulates it and who decides who gets water at what point? And that's becoming more and more difficult once, once there's less water. Uh, that's, uh, that those are difficult choices. This unavoidably puts access to a key and fundamental resource in a very vulnerable position. Therefore, it's essential that we put this topic on the international agenda and start developing a global approach. And as always, the private sector plays an enormously important role. We talk about business and corporates. Uh, we talk about sustainable water use by, by a corporate, by, in the beverage industry, for example. And, um, uh, and a lot of them are improving their practices if it comes to uh, sustainable water use. But what is often forgotten in market dynamics is that there's value chains and supply chains. And we often don't, do not see to what extent water is being used in a sustainable way 
further down a supply chain or a value chain. So that's also why if we look at sustainable SDG 6 and the relationship to the business world and the corporate world, we often tend to look only at the companies which are in our view, which are often listed in, in capital markets, uh, which are being regulated. But we forget often that uh, in, in food supply chains and clothing supply chains and in mining and you name it, uh, semiconductors, a lot of water is being used as well. The clothes we wear is made out of cotton often and it's produced in a factory somewhere in Vietnam or Bangladesh. And um, often water in the, both in the production of cotton and in the production of the actual clothes or clothing is not being done in a very sustainable way, uh, either polluting the water or in the production, uh, water too much water is being used, sometimes in an area where that water is not available. And so we often forget that in, in supply chains, in, in value chains, a lot of water is, is, is not being used efficiently. And there's very little oversight, very little knowledge, very little awareness about this. So increased awareness and focus of the largest companies on sustainable water usage throughout their value chain as well as sensitivity to the local context could have a major impact, but it all requires increased institutionalized awareness. If it comes to looking at uh, sustainable practices in, in, in supply chains of, of big multinationals, for example, there are a lot of effort already is being taken in the field of child labor or um, fair wage, diminishing CO2 impact, so carbon footprint of in, in the supply chain. But similarly, that could and should also be done for sustainable water usage. Uh, so companies, big corporates, uh, could look into their supply chains, how their suppliers deal with sustainable water management or how they use water in their in their production. Uh, and some, some are doing that, but it's still way too few. And I think the awareness uh, within, within the corporate world is still too limited in that field. And too few companies have that actually in their in their sustainability playbook, so to say. So that, that could be an important step. So making it more central in your sustainability policy. So if you incorporate... Uh, water management and sustainable water uses more in, in, in those supply chains and those value chains, I think we could make big steps. Now, it's not the businesses alone that carry this responsibility. Changes to the system as a whole are also required, involving all of us. So what a friction is, is markets, market systems which are working in an unsustainable way working in, in loops which are negative loops, which is which are re reinforcing themselves. So, for example, we take the Chile case, and, and I will also tell you another case about Vietnam, where uh, we, we are working together with one of the biggest importers in the Netherlands of uh, uh, exotic fruits and, and vegetables. Uh, and they have well, they're one of those few companies that are uh, that have actually put water in the central on their sustainability policy so they say look we want to do something about that because well first of all it's uh, you know we feel responsibility towards the people and the regions where we where we purchase our, our fruits and vegetables and second of all it's a business risk because um, uh, you know we need to be able to supply our supermarkets with uh, with with those uh, fruits and vegetables uh, from all over the world, uh, because people uh, are want to want to buy those, those, those produce year round. So they put them water central, and then they they said, okay, what are we going to do about it? And then they start digging into it, and they buy their uh, their their avocados in this case from farmers in this in this catchment. And then they realize that talking to the regional water authority and to the local university that. Uh, actually, uh, you know, they, they realize what, what the water balance is and there's more water going out than coming in. And a, a water balance always needs to be, needs to close, needs to be zero. That is unsustainable eh, in the long run from a literal point of view. And then they think like, okay, but how 
from our perspective, how, how can we, we are an important player eh, because we buy all that stuff, we buy all those vegetables, but how do we actually, how can we change that? Eh, because, uh, yeah, those farmers, they uh, they cannot simply grow another crop so quickly. Uh, they, they, they don't even want that because that's what they have been doing. And then we have to deal with that NGO that thinks it does. But, you know, uh, we also have, we also have our own interests. So they realize that they're part of this bigger system where also you have, and I forgot to say that, that where you have our customers in the Netherlands, yeah, the supermarkets and the end consumers, which want year-round that avocado for that price. So they're not able to pay more. They don't want to pay more for it yeah, because then they will say, well, we go to another, we go to another supplier. So given that those circumstances, you know, you're in a, in a loop, which is very difficult to break out of even though we want to. So that's that's a very important obstacle that uh, one company, a consumer cannot change it by itself, a supermarket chain cannot change it by itself, a farmer cannot change it by itself, a water authority cannot change it by itself, uh, and an importer cannot do it. So, you know, you know, there needs to be a concerted common effort being done. That's a very serious issue. That's what makes this so complicated and so complex. It's clear that it's complex and there is not an easy fix. Another example I want to use is, for example, we work a lot in, in the Mekong Delta in, in, in Vietnam where, uh, you know, there's a big rice production and shrimp production and tilapia production, often not only used for the domestic market, but also in Southeast Asia and in the, and in the, and, and the export to the US and to, to Australia and to Europe. And basically Vietnam is known for being a cheap producer. Uh, but it's also becoming more and more unsustainable uh, because uh, uh, there's not enough water because from the Mekong River, because uh, there's dams being built, uh, rainfall is becoming more erratic um, uh, because of uh, unsustainable groundwater extraction. Uh, there's much more salt water into the groundwater, making uh, production more difficult of rice. Uh, then the the shrimp and the intensive the intensive shrimp farming, intensive uh, tilapia farming is uh, is making the water polluted. But they need to produce a lot, so intensive to be able to sell for a cheap price. And if they don't sell, su supply anymore for a cheap price, then yeah, they will lose their customers. So also there you have a very negative loop going on. Uh, and how how do you break through that negative loop? You know, so there's a there's a there's an unsustainable market dynamic going on. And how do you how do you break through that un unsustainable market dynamic? And there's there's not one player that can change that. That it's a, it's a it's a the system will need to change. And the big question: How do you change that system? So breaking this negative loop and the unsustainable market economics requires concerted and global action. We all need to be playing our parts. So the question is: Who should take the lead? Yeah, that's. That's an almost impossible question to answer. In the end, the consumer should pay what it costs to produce the, the product in a fair way. From a water point of view, from a labor point of view, from a fair wage point of view, from a CO2 emittance point of view. And uh, somehow that needs to happen. But who should do that? Uh, that's yeah. That's that. That is a question I I cannot answer. If I would have the answer, then I think the problem would already have been solved. And because you don't you don't, you, you don't have a government that can say, look, you know, the, the consumer needs to pay a higher price, and we regulate it in such a way in that whole supply chain that uh, that there is a fair price for for the producer, so that he or she can take care of sustainable water management and has a fair wage and have a that 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 doesn't have. There's no global authority that arranges that. And that's 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 the big complexity. But um, so actually, it should be. It can only happen if if some sort of movement will 
start uh, a combined effort of consumers, producers, governments that are saying, look, you know, we can can continue like this anymore. We need we you know we need a different practice and start shaking the pillars of that 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 unsustainable market system, uh, so that actually you have a situation where. Uh, the market is being forced to start producing more sustainably, also from a water point of view. So on one hand, it's it's all about political tension, about creating awareness and creating the right example so that that others can take can take up and take along. But it's you know it's it's um, uh, it, it will really require a massive effort uh, that can not only be driven by. Uh, a few donors or a few governments. It really requires an effort by by everybody and, and awareness by everybody that uh, that something needs to be done. And um, yeah, that's a great that's a great task at hand. And uh, the, the sense of urgency is is increasing. I feel right? because uh, unfortunately, because we have so many water crises going around, the, the floods, the droughts, uh, increasingly also affect affecting uh, markets and therefore producers and consumers and economic and economic uh, systems uh, and that that also probably will drive people to take the water issue much more serious which will hopefully lead to more uh, more concrete and uh, action and investment in this field um, but uh, the time the time span the time frame is getting very short and that worries me and in order to drive sustainable action we need to understand the nature of resources first learning to work with nature and its limitations. If we understand our physical system, we understand how much we have. And then then we can decide how much we use and how we divide that water. But that also means that sometimes we need to make choices. You know, we sometimes think that everything is possible. And we build cities and places, we build industries, assuming that the water to service those cities and that industry is there. Uh, so we don't analyze whether the water is actually there uh, and then we still build anyway. And then we come to the conclusion that it's not there and need, we need all kind of artificial fixes to make sure to to to, to get the water uh, to a certain place. So um, so that's that's something that we need, we need to try to avoid. So we need to understand the physical system very well before we actually start to produce or to build or whatever. And if we if we start realizing that, then, uh, then we already make a very big step. And we cannot wait until the house is on fire. Water is key to all lives. We need to drive preventive actions today rather than tomorrow. Humankind is often only taking action when the when shit hits a fan. Eh? So uh, it's only when when real crisis is there and when it's actually too late. What we're trying to say the whole time: look, take action uh, to prevent these crises from happening. So take preventive action because otherwise the cost will be much higher. And there are so many calculations and reports where. It's being said, look, if you, if you take action, you can you can save yourself billions and billions of euros and dollars, both industry, governments, etc. Taking after action afterwards is much more expensive than taking actions before. Now we'll travel to Southeast Asia, to an island city-state known as Singapore, to hear about the management, preventive actions, and increased awareness of the importance of sustainable water usage. So Singapore is actually a very, very small country. Um, and we are only about 700 square kilometers big, and uh, but we have to support a population of about 5.9 million. And we don't have a lot of resources, natural resources. Uh, we don't have natural snow melt. Um, we do not have, um, you know, like um, gas under our our island. So basically, um, we import most of the things that we require, whether it's, your, whether it's the food that we require, the energy we require, as well as the water that we need today. 
And so, and in fact, there was a, a report, I think in 2015, by the World Resources Institute. Um, it actually indicated uh, Singapore as one of the most water-stressed countries uh, come 2040. Meet Chang Mian Leng, Chief Sustainability Officer at the Singapore National Water Agency. And as she just said, historically Singapore has dealt with severe constraints on natural resources. And for water, they had to import it from Malaysia and make the most out of their own very few water reservoirs. But this was not enough, so the call for innovation began some time ago. But it was really in 2003 where we introduced a new national tap, uh, which is what we call new water. It's basically water reuse. Um, And this is actually, I would say, a game changer because um, water reuse actually is very powerful in the sense that um, it introduces what we call multiplier effect. So when we produce the first drop of water, right, whether it's our local reservoir, whether it's imported from Malaysia, once it gets into our water system, you know, we use by the population, then it becomes our used water. We basically treat it um, and reclaim it with advanced technology. And then this drop of water continues to circulate back for use. So in that sense, water reuse really um, introduced this multiplier effect where you know, one single drop of water just gets reused uh, many times over. Uh, and also in 2005, we also started our first uh, seawater desalination plant. And really new water and seawater desalination was also were really enabled because you know, uh, membrane technologies at that point in time became more mature and became more cost efficient. Um, so, you know, since then, you know, we have a diversified um, uh, water resources, uh, which we fondly call the four national taps. The first step was to secure enough water supply, and then they embarked on a journey towards more sustainable solutions. Um, the downside of these two um, national taps is that they are actually more energy intensive. Um, so we actually projected, you know, all the way to 2060s, right, if we continue business as usual and we do nothing about it, the energy we require at that point in time will be four times of what we need today. So that is definitely not sustainable. Um, and so since the 2000, like 2004, 2006, uh, we have very conscientiously looked into new technologies to help us reduce the energy that we require in the first place. Uh, so some of the technologies are like the newer types of membranes. Um, so one area that we are looking at is like the biomimetic membranes, uh, where we actually put proteins uh, into the membrane to reduce the resistance it has um, to when we push the water through. So by reducing the pressure that we require to push the water through, it reduces the energy that's required. Okay, let's stop here for a second. We found that changing a membrane can make a big difference in energy consumption. A membrane, a small adjustment that makes a huge difference, showing that even the smallest details could drive major change. And on a larger scale, Chong Min Leng and her team had an idea of harnessing the advantage they have by being a coastal nation with lots of sunlight to make it all more sustainable and cost efficient. We did uh, a lot of um, environmental impact studies, including uh, whether there's concerns in terms of the biodiversity in the vicinity, the impact on water quality and whether there's any microclimatic changes um, around the uh, solar uh, PV system. And we also see certain benefits where, you know, we find that the solar PV system is actually 5 to 15% more efficient than a land-based system. So that all this put together, it gives us the confidence to actually scale up this floating solar PV um, uh, implementation. 
And that is when we go, we went ahead with a 60 megawatt peak floating solar farm on Tengi Reservoir, uh, which was actually officially opened uh, mid of this year. And from this farm, right, this solar farm, is actually able to um, meet the energy needs of all my local waterworks. In addition to building one of the world's biggest floating solar panel farms, the Singapore National Water Agency also works on several fronts to reduce water consumption, like educating children, consulting with companies, and even installing real-time smart water meters for people to get a better idea of how much water they are using. They're using technology and innovation to stay ahead of the curve, and this has been a standard practice for a long time. And I think one of the key um, learnings that I have found is that um, like back to the experience that we started looking at water reuse in the 1970s, right? But, you know, we were, we were um, I guess, pragmatic enough to say that, no, at that point in time, it's too expensive, let's put it aside. Um, but we continue to keep a keen eye on the technology and it's always ready to act, you know, when the technology is mature enough. Um, and then that actually accumulates in the, in the national program of water reuse. So I think the, one of the learnings for me is that, you know, sometimes when at that point in time, a certain solution may not be viable uh, for whatever reason, but I think we should always look out for signposts uh, further down the road where, you know, some of the circumstances would have changed and that would have made uh, those solutions being viable. But I think it's important to know uh, why is it that it doesn't work at that point in time. So is it a cost issue? Is it a technical issue? If it's a technical issue, then I guess more research is needed. But if it's a cost issue, then I think that there is when, you know, the decision can be made to like, okay, so what is that? What is that price point that worked for me, right? And then continue to monitor the technology. Um, and if, when the price point is right, and that's when, you know, we can act. So always being on the lookout for a viable solution, understanding why a specific solution might not be workable at a certain point in time, and using that understanding to drive action has been part of the approach taken by Singapore to date. The challenges of clean water and sanitation differ from one local context to another. After all, we all have different starting points. But with a looming water crisis and the essential role of water for all of us, we all need to step up. While we can all do our part, we still need a concerted action and a global agenda providing a holistic, sustainable approach. The Rising Tide podcast is co-produced by the GRI and Naranha Media. We want to thank Xiong Mian Leng and Dennis van Peppen for sharing their time and expertise. We also want to thank the Swedish government for making this podcast series possible. We greatly appreciate their long-standing support for sustainable development work, catalyzing actions towards the SDGs. My name is Tina Nybo Jensen. Thank you for listening.